Good morning and welcome to the Hot Mess Podcast. I'm David Brady and I'm happy to host today. This podcast is not a hot mess yet. It's a podcast-tron. Pretty sure that I got corrected our first time out and the podcast is called Greater Than Code and I don't know why I have to keep reminding everyone of this fact. <laughs> Greater Than Code? What fun is that? It's a lot of fun. Jessica is with us here today. Jessica Kerr. Yes, I am. And thank you, Coraline, for the correction. Right, Sam? Absolutely. And uh, also with us this morning is Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, everybody. I am very happy to also be here today with Astrid. Thanks, Coraline. And I'm happy to introduce our guest today, which is Charity Majors. Charity is the co-founder and CTO of a new startup focused on making machine data explorable and delightful. Before that, she was a production engineering manager at Facebook, where she spent three and a half years working on Parse, both pre- and post-acquisition. And she also spent several years at Linden Lab, working on the infrastructure that powers Second Life. Hi, Charity. Hi. I am so happy here this morning. <laughs> this is an amazing podcast. I had so much fun going through your archives. I love that you publish transcripts. This is a trend that I hope that more and more people pick up. I'm super excited to be here. It's awesome. And good morning. So normally when we start off with a guest, we like to get an introduction on them. And Astrid gave a great bio on you. And we also, in the middle of the show, introduce a guest question. And Donald Plummer actually ties it all neatly together. He has a question for you, which is, what is your superhero origin story? My understanding is that you were bitten by a radioactive bee and fell into a vat of acid. Uh, this is While correct. playing the piano. Yes. You're I'm all giving true. birth to dragons. <laughs> Not many people know that, but now it's going to be on the internet. So it must be true. <laughs> it must be true. Yeah, I come from Idaho. I was a piano major. I accidentally found computers because I really hated women, and that was where the women weren't. And so misogyny got me into computers. And thankfully, I kept the computers, even the misogyny more or less left. So I started out doing music, and I came down to Silicon Valley when I was 17. I've been doing startups ever since, and just recently co-founded my first of my very own. A lot of people don't do startups. Have you noticed this? I can't think of many like role models in the industry for operations people who start companies. Can you think of any? Not offhand, no. Um, I think most of them just want to imitate something that's already been done or solve a Silicon Valley cis white hat male problem. I don't know. Yeah. Operations is a Silicon Valley problem. Does that make it a cis hat white male problem? Operations affects everybody. Yeah. This is an argument that I was I was having with some people the other day on the internet. Oh, this is going to be good. Julia, bless her heart. I I love that girl so much. Um, <laughs> she she posted something um, about how you know about operating software and how she you know, wants to get better at operations, but casting in the light of operating software. And, and I kind of jumped out on it as an opportunity to kind of articulate, I think, what I really value about operations and why I get so pissed off when I hear people like devaluating it. Because operations has nothing to do with software. You know, every field has operations. It's a way of problem solving that focuses on different aspects. So when you talk about operations engineering in a software context, it's about building and designing and maintaining really complex systems over their life cycle. And software is incidental to it, you know, and the nature of it changes according to the type of system you're responsible for. So my fear about why operations engineers tend not to start as companies as like software engineers it's sort of self-selecting. I mean, really comfortable being in a position of, you know, first infrastructure person brought on to kind of clean up the mess and make the company kind of grow up. 
you know, when it has proven its product market fit. Um, not used to doing it from the beginning. And then that now was a really awkward. Now I get to make your own mess. Now I get to make my own mess. And that's really unsettling. <laughs> Being the person <laughs> that I know I'm going to be cursing out in, you know, a solid six months or so. I think that if you're going to think about operations as only the shitty parts of the software lifecycle, then you're thinking of it as a fundamentally uncreative act. And any role that is not creative is one that's going to be automated out of existence. I do think the operations is a very creative role. Where does that creativity manifest? I'm curious. Where's your creativity when you're writing code? You know, you're both reacting and you're trying to automate yourself out of a job at any given time. And the creativity manifests in response to unpredictable unexpected problems that are coming at you. And operations is so exciting to me in a way that software engineering never was because I love the reactive role. I love the reactive role as well as I see my role as stomping out chaos wherever it arises. And this is why I love platforms because platforms are just a type of software where you're giving humans so much more creativity and flexibility in how they're going to throw shit at you. You're just like, hey, you know, use me however you can dream up. And it's not just like, you know, like a shopping website where you have some predefined code paths, you make sure that your conversion rate is high, you alert if, you know, payments are sharply dropping, but you have a lot more control over the system than you do if you're a platform like Parse, where you're just like, run your third-party code on my servers, and I will try to make it not impact anyone else. Store your data in my databases. Oh my God, when you talk about being a DBA for people who can write random shit in your database from all over the internet. I think that's really fun. That is not the conclusion I was expecting from that. <laughs> <laughs> You went from people writing random shit from all over the internet to, and I think it's really fun. That's the creative part, right? Yeah. You don't know what they're going to throw at you. I need to have something to rant about, and it has to be worthy of, of ranting, you know? I don't feel like it's justified, like, ranting about, you know, oh, I didn't write a test to catch this error. Like, that's just... I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying this is what my brain likes. (laughs) Your kink is okay, too. (laughs) (laughs) Because part of the creativity is experiencing this as fun. Yes, yes. This is why you find the best gallows humor in the ops channel. Is this not universally true? (laughs) You know, and I, I actually look for this when I'm hiring people. You think about who do you want to be in chat with at 3 a.m. when the world's on fire, when you could quite possibly, your actions over the next five minutes could put your company out of business permanently or not. Who still has their sense of humor and is like forward into the breach? Like those are the people you want to work with. I like that you said stamping out chaos uh, wherever you find it or wherever it arises. It's this inherent paradox and like constant state of tension, right? Where you're always trying to work yourself out of a job. And if you're successful, you eventually will. And so this suits really well an area where the average job is like two years long, right? Like if you've done your job well, um, it'll be time to hand the keys over to someone who is more of a, what's the metaphor? There's a famous essay about, you know, you have the three types of, there's the cavalry, the infantry, the whatever. There's the people who like storm the banks, but they will never be happy in a policeman's role. I don't remember mm-hmm. what the roles are, but I'm very, very much in the first camp. Right. There's the commandos who like storm the beach and just get something running. And then there's the infantry who come in and stamp out the chaos and make it okay. And then there's the police who just keep order, keep everything the same. And I'm like in the middle of the first two, you know, I like ushering an organization into the more stable middle path. Um, by the time it reaches policemen, I'm just, I'm gone. 
Um, you said something about like looking back on what you did six months ago and finding it to be a hot mess. I really think that if you are in a position where you look back on the work you did six months ago and don't see what chaos you might have unintentionally wrought or didn't don't see the, the ways you could do things better, you're really not growing as a professional. For sure. Oh my God, totally. What are some of those mistakes that you've seen yourself make that you wish you could, or that you've either had to undo or wish that you could have done differently? Well, on a technical level, like working at Parse, uh, we started out by, well, we used Ruby on Rails. That was a choice. We used MongoDB in the really early days. That was a choice. And we started out by promising people the world. You know, we'll do regular expressions on the database. Um, now, you could argue that those were mistakes. And you could argue that they weren't. You know, um, there are the set of things that you have to do in order to have the problems of success. Most projects are never lucky enough to have the problems of success where you have to start, you know, systemizing things. It's hard to make something that clicks with enough people uh, that you get to have the kind of problems that are worth complaining about. So on the one hand, you could say that those were mistakes because they were all painful choices that we, to some extent or another, had to unwind or had to recover from. But would we have gotten to that point if we hadn't made those mistakes? You know, it's hard to say. You know, we underwent an extremely painful rewrite from Ruby and Rails to Go for the API two years in. And it was much slower and more complicated to maintain the Go version, but would we have been able to develop it fast enough in order to get there? Same with Mongo. I like thinking about it in terms of like getting to the problems of success. As a founder, one of the things that I am getting better and better at is compartmentalizing and just being like, yes, that is a problem for future us. And I cannot think about it now. <laughs> that will be a problem of success that we will hopefully have to fight with, you know, three months from now. But we'll just be paralyzed. We'll just stop if we start thinking about all those things. I love that phrase. What do you mean by problems of success? The problems that you have when people are adopting you and it's dizzying and the site's crashing because, you know, you have hockey stick growth. That's one problem of success. Or, you know, you found your niche. You need to hire. You found a thing that causes people to sign up. You need to start stepping on that gas pedal. You need to start creating flows that catch problems of success they can be cultural you know wow we just we just hired a bunch of new people and they don't all share the vocabulary that we have um they don't share the way we look at the world we need to decide how prescriptive we want to be with our cultural stuff whether we want, want to go the culty way like stripe <laughs> or linden Ooh. you know very culty companies uh which is awesome like cults carry a lot of implicit values very very quickly but they will alienate people right they will be polarizing so it's a choice and you know the problems of success like you know jessica your blog post on the spectrum of risk with storage on the one hand mm. like you'd be really super cautious about making big changes to storage or versus like developer tools go nuts you know exercise your creativity and your hunger for novelty on that side in the beginning, you don't yet know that you need to be conservative in your software choices, uh, in your software sprawl, in your language sprawl. Uh, you know, go nuts. Like, wait until you have the problems of, okay, kids, now we have to focus, you know, because we have customers who we can't let down. We have a, you know, a pipeline that we need to focus on. I see one thing in my experience that is a little bit counter to that, and I'd love to get your perspective on it. And that is, we have an incubator space here in Chicago that happens to share space with a code school. And what I see happen a lot to some of the younger people that I've mentored is that they get snatched up by these startups with business co-founders and get made the technical co-founder and get asked to build an MVP <sighs> straight out of code school. 
And I could see what you said being used as an excuse to say, well, the MVP doesn't matter. We're not successful yet. Let's yeah. just build it. So how would you respond to that? That's a really good example of we have to be conscious to our audiences, right? I'm used to assuming that my audience is people like me who are rooted in Silicon Valley, who are fairly senior, who have battle wounds and scars. And so I can just flippantly make these blanket statements that other people can then go off and wield in ways that I never expected or predicted. If I understand your question correctly, you're saying these people right out of hacker school get tossed in with a business co-founder. They haven't necessarily worked with anyone in a production setting. They don't really understand what makes a software project sustainable and they're just stamping out an MVP so that they have something they can demo to get money. Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah. And I've seen it happen that those naive MVPs end up being the, the heart of a system when they start getting some traction. And then you have to bring in people like me to say, um, it's not yeah. working. What do we do to fix it? And it's a big stinky mess because the core is rotten. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a pretty predatory dynamic in my opinion. Uh, that that may be too strong of a statement, but you I don't know, think so. These, these hacker, okay, so these hacker schools, I'm pretty pissed off at a lot of them because they're promising the world and they're not talking about what it takes to be a mature engineer. They're talking about how you can get to make thousands of dollars a year. You should never be dropping someone into a CTO role when, they, when this is their first job. I mean, and we've seen that this is not unique to not Silicon Valley. This happens in Silicon Valley, too. But, like, if you don't know how to build a piece of software that's sustainable, what do you team. say to these people? And I mean, if you drop someone brand new into a CTO role, what are you doing to the people they eventually doing? hire? Yes, yes. And like you're setting yourself for failure on either way, right? If you continue to have this person in a position of leadership and authority and responsibility, and they don't know what they don't know, it's going to be so frustrating for anyone who is senior who comes tries to come in and work with them. On the other hand, if they do know what they don't know, they probably wouldn't have taken this job in the first place because they know that it's a terrible idea. <laughs> Corlin, what would you what would you like to tell the world about this? You've seen this much more closely than I have. Um, I think we need to spend a little time in boot camp situations, setting realistic expectations for people and also warning them that there are lots of people in the tech world who are predatory as fuck. Yes, so much. I, I echo that completely. I feel like as senior developers, especially for those of us who are more in the police role in this commandos, uh, infantry police metaphor, I feel like we have a responsibility too to respect that dynamic and recognize it and recognize we wouldn't be in the company that we're in if it hadn't made it through that sequence, right? I've actually gotten myself into a lot of trouble by complaining about a lot of stuff and saying, I don't I don't know why it was this way without actually establishing that trust first that I, I respect what came before. So I don't feel like we should put it all on the coding boot camps or on the people who are in them. Yeah, but I do think that humility is not a cardinal value in the engineering industry, let's put it that way. <laughs> we do this. Um, we set people up to fail by not establishing realistic expectations. And we also then put people in a situation where they feel like it's not okay to fail. And that's the biggest failure of all, you know, because then people internalize that, you know, well, everyone else is succeeding and they're not. And that's really toxic to people who are already insecure, especially. And it's more toxic for the people who don't have that sense of insecurity who then just go out and stomp over other people. I did want to address the the thing that I said earlier about uh, culty companies. It was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I've worked at culty companies. I've been accused of creating culty companies. And I didn't mean that in a bad way. 
when you're young and growing, it is the most effective way to build really passionate teams who have a lot of trust and empathy. But once you cross that Dunbar number, are you guys familiar with the Dunbar number? Some of our listeners may not be. Yeah. It's about monkeys. It's about monkeys. It's about monkeys. And it's about, it's like basically a hardwired limit based on the number of connective neurons in our brains, uh, the number of relationships that we can keep in our head. It, it, grossly oversimplified, it is the number of people whose names and relationships to each other you can keep in your head. And it's about 140-ish. And like you see this pattern over and over, like in, in the military and early tribal societies, etc., where when you have a unit that's over 140, informal methods of communication kind of fall apart and you need to establish some sort of hierarchy. Um, you need to start thinking about people in terms of their role you rather than just individuality. and coordination. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you. and so, Stripe totally, like, consciously passed that. And, I mean, even in the last year that I've been there, we're now close to 500 or, I don't know, somewhere around 500. And when I started, I remember they said, oh, and pretty soon you'll recognize everybody and know who's a Stripe. And I was like, no. No, we won't. You started when this company was Especially under being remote, right? Oh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and it's true. But we have like really consciously moved away. Like one of our core values used to be trust other stripes, mm. but we passed the number of employees where you can know all the other stripes in order to develop that personal trust. And yeah. now we consciously do coordination. We do planning. We have teams assigned to own each piece of software because we can't have that collective ownership anymore because we, like you said, we can't all know each other as individuals. Yeah. We have to abstract and go yeah. to roles and teams. It's a really rough transition for a lot of people. It is for me. I really prefer the smaller ones, which is why probably I'm not a at a big company. GitHub's gone through a similar thing. They famously, when they started, had no managers whatsoever. And then about yeah. two years ago, they saw that that was becoming really problematic for lots of reasons. And a lot of people left because they wanted that original culture where there wasn't any management, there wasn't any oversight, you could work on whatever you wanted. Yeah. But I think in order to get to a certain size, you need some of that structure. Yeah. And um, yeah. you have to ask yourself, like, are the values that we were founded on still our core values? Because it's values totally... shift over time. Yeah, and it's totally legit to want one thing or the other thing. It's not okay to say this is good. This is inherently good in the way other people should operate because it's really, it's like an emergent property of how you function best at that size and that scale. And it has to change. Uh, you have to grow up in order to be effective. And it's okay to prefer the early stage, but just be conscious of that's your preference and your choice. And you may have to go elsewhere to find it. Yeah. There's also a challenge with the people who were there from the beginning do know each other and they think, yeah. oh, we we personally don't need the structure and they don't see that the new people coming in really do need a structure because yeah. there is always a power structure. It's just a matter of whether it's explicit or not. For sure, for sure. And not explicit power structures are incredibly terrifying and disorienting. It's like there are rules and I don't know them. They're not written down anywhere. Other people seem to know them. How am I supposed to know them? It's kind of like microservices. It's kind of like microservices. That is an excellent transition. Actually, that is a good point to transition on. Before we move on to the next point, though, I'd like to point out this show is dedicated to one of our $50 level Patreon donors, Thomas Peter Bernson. He's a software craftsman, designer, and consultant in Aarhus, Denmark, and is TP Bernson, B-E-R-N-T-S-E-N, -E -E on Twitter. Thanks, Thomas. This one's for you. And if you want to be awesome like Thomas, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash greater than code and sign up. You'll get immediate access to our private Slack community at any donation level. 
should also point out that last show I made a reference to brown M&Ms and I had said that I would give a shout out to the first person who got the reference. That person is Martian, M-A-R-S-H-I-A-N on Twitter, who correctly identified that not having brown M&Ms backstage was a rider in the Van Halen tour contract. And there was actually a really good reason for it. They figured that if a venue couldn't get that detail right, they wouldn't get any of the important safety details like stage strength and being able to handle the weight of amplifiers and so on right either. So that was a big red flag for them, which is pretty cool. So thanks so much, Martian, for getting a reference. So Conway's Law. Conway's Law is uh, one of those laws of the internet which states that the organization will grow to resemble the um, hierarchy or human layout of the teams that built it, right? The the software is constrained to follow that design, right? Yeah. And there's this famous image that's floating around the internet that has like the picture of, you know, Microsoft being a circular firing squad. And I love that image. It's, it's hilarious. So when you start thinking about Conway's Law as it applies to microservices, uh, you might be inherently terrified, uh, as you should be, <laughs> because <laughs> you've got, you know, if, okay, so Uber has you know, a thousand plus microservices. And they transitioned to that over uh, like a six month period, which is dizzying and, and mind boggling. How should you structure teams when you have a thousand microservices? Presumably, you don't want to have a thousand tiny software engineering teams. That seems incredibly inefficient and wasteful. Unless you really like working by yourself. <laughs> Unless you really like working by yourself and not being able to go on vacation. So this is something I've just been kind of thinking about, and I have a talk to write. So I thought it'd be cool to like have you do some of the work for me by uh, talking about it here. Yeah. So microservices. So okay. So I would you should do this intentionally because if you don't make these cultural transitions intentionally, they will happen unintentionally, and your outcomes will generally be worse. Right. One of the things that happens when you're using, when you're doing microservices is you're trading engineering for politics. Your political interactions become much more um, important and much more challenging because of an, instead of just trying to get tests to run, instead of just trying to get it to build, um, you have to convince other people to um, make changes that you want. The personal aspect of it just becomes a lot more Really? I I usually express it the opposite direction. There's been Mm. some great talks by Michael Feathers, and there was one by Eric Evans, about Conway's law is, it's a law like gravity is a law. Mm. It's just true. Your software architecture will follow the communication lines in your organization. Mm. So plan your organization around how you want your software architecture to look. And I always thought people do microservices because they don't want to have to talk to each other in person. They're going mm. to encode an API. But as you point out, really, we need to talk to each other even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Observationally, this is true. I agree that it seems like it should work that way. And I think that that's a lot responsible for a lot of the adoption. <laughs> uh, and I think that it, it just doesn't work out that way. And do any of you work with microservices personally? Depends on your definition of micro, but yeah. Good point. We use them very heavily at uh, Cover My Meds. But yeah, the definition of micro comes into question. We have some pretty large microservices. Yeah. It is, it is fascinating to me how people will identify their architecture in a way that I wouldn't necessarily identify it as an outside observer, but it's more like we have chosen to adopt this um, way of thinking about it and we will apply it even if it results don't necessarily look at it. Let's talk about it in the context of uh, software engineering and operations engineering. You can pretty much assume that you're not going to have, you know, your classic, you know, software engineering team and operations team for every single microservice, right? There are many ways to solve this problem. 
right? There are many approaches that are good and, and can work really well. I've seen lots of them work. So at Facebook, the way that they do this is you have a um, team of software engineers with embedded production engineers who are responsible for core parts of the stack, right? For ads or for the internal, you know, scuba metrics, you know, and then there's like the kind of roving bands of people who have a specialty like security who go around and kind of like service the dedicated spheres. And there are a lot of things that I like about this model. I like that it puts the focus on software engineers being on call for their own stuff. I personally think that we should be moving as an industry away from operations engineers being on call and towards software engineers being on call for their stuff with ops people as like expert consultants. I really like that model. And if you think about it, all of us are already doing this. We just don't think of it this way. If you're using AWS, or Google Compute, your ops team is mostly AWS and mostly Google SREs. Uh, we just don't think about it that way. I think this is a trend that's going to continue, and I think it's good for everyone, and we should embrace it. So that's one way of doing microservices from a team perspective. Another way where, where you're actually just outsourcing the operation stuff. Do one of you who do more software engineering stuff want, want to talk about what this looks like from the software engineer's perspective? Yes. Yeah, so as a, as a software engineer, if I'm going to run my program on AWS, and I think this means I don't have to do operations, well, I do. I just get to use AWS's abstraction of operations instead of the hardware manufacturer and the operating systems and the virtual and all the email thingers and the SMS thingers and everything else that I can just say, Amazon, your stuff works together. But I still have to know that API. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff does not abstract away a lot yeah. of those complications. There's still memory restrictions, stuff like, oh, we're running Postgres on this tiny box. Why does it pause every five minutes? Oh, yeah. because Amazon's own RDS stuff <laughs> can't run on all of the boxes that it offers it on. Yeah, so true. Serverless is like, uh, the uh, they keep inviting me back to these conferences and I don't know why. Serverless is like explicitly promising people you do not have to care about these things and it's a lie it's a lie and a trick and it's a trap it's a very profitable trap lots of people seem to be making lots of money off of it and lots of people seem to be making lots of money off the damage that it causes if anyone ever tells you you don't have to that's win-win care about it really is <laughs> i keep threatening to get into the contracting business because someday some glorious day yes money being made all around anytime anyone is selling you something that sounds too good to be true it is I've heard the term serverless, but I don't really have a good understanding of what it means. Would you mind unpacking that for a second? Ah, yes. Serverless is the newest term where people are promising that you don't have to think about ops. It's basically saying, you know, everything operational is bad. It's old. It's so old. Like it has wrinkles and it's so archaic. And if you're a really good developer, um, you just don't need it anymore. But in fact, it's turtles all the way down. There's always a server there. Have you ever used Lambda and gotten the error disk full? <laughs> <laughs> as, as Jessica put it, it's just an abstraction, right? And you can change the set of problems that you have by forming an abstraction. And those, those are a better set of problems to have. Like Jessica doesn't want to be driving to the Colo to press reboot on a server. I don't want to. I am so grateful for AWS and the people who do it with hardware ops because I remember the days when we didn't have it. <laughs> I want to be dealing with a better set of problems, but I still have to think about physical reality. The speed of light is not changing. We saw this so much at Parse where I could tell you how um, operationally aware 
any given mobile app developer was just by looking at the code that they had written, looking at the queries they were issuing. A full table scan is still a full table scan. I would see people issuing queries in my database or like select all objects from this collection that are greater than X, equal to X, or less than X. Like, fuck me, you're doing three full table scans. Like, oh my God. You know, like, they thought you couldn't get they worse than a full table scan. They probably did select star too. Oh, you can. Oh, you can get worse than a full table scan. And then they call us up and they're angry at us because we had promised that we abstract away all of that and we do all the operations engineering for you. Like, okay, yeah, we do, but you're still doing three full table scans in, in that query. I can't optimize this away for you. <laughs> so I would like to personally address every single one of those developers and be like, look, yes, I can do this work for you, but I can't make it work well, you know? And the more you think about the consequences of what you're pushing out there into the world, the better time you're going to have, no matter who your provider is, even if they're the best engineers in the world, you still have to know these things. You still have to think about them. And the earlier you think about them, the better a time you're going to have in general. And I really, I get personally irritated a lot when people just start slagging on ops. They're like, oh, ops is a dirty word. In my experience, generally, you don't make a thing better by denying that it exists. You make a thing better by naming it, like speaking to it, valuing it, and improving it. So, Charity, <laughs> what do you think that software engineers should be doing to actually learn more about operations and how they should be bringing that into the way they write their code. This is a, a great time to pivot on that topic. Before we move on, I'd like to point out we are offering sponsorship per episode opportunities for individuals, companies, conferences. Whether you're hiring, selling conference tickets, or have a product or project you want to share with the community, you can take a 30 to 60 second ad out at the beginning of the show and put an ad on the episode you sponsor. Get in touch with our show manager, Mandy, at mandy at greaterthancode.com for more details. So what can software engineers do to get better at ops and what should they be doing? It's almost less of an individual question than it is an organizational question. Like I like to think of ops, and this is something I said in my craft comp talk, operations is like the emergent property of all of your values and practices and habits, both implicit and explicit, around shipping quality software. And this is going to be different for every organization. Like some orgs need five nines. Most don't, and they just don't admit it. You know, but it's way better to be like, no, we don't need five nines because our clients retry. We're mobile. Nobody who's in mobile should expect more than two and a half nines. You just, you're not going to get it because mobile sucks. I think it's way better to be explicit about your needs than like have it be sort of, you know, oh, well, we aim to be up all the time. So your organizational needs around shipping quality software. This is something that everyone from like your tech support team to your CEO participates in. Ops is something that everyone participates in. It's not really a dedicated role. Even if you have a role that is like, you know, 75, 80% of their mandate is tending to your operational. It's, it's your job to make sure we hit it, whatever that takes. You know, and sometimes that is we need to do a better job of listening to our users because the metrics that we're paying attention to don't reflect their actual experience. Sometimes it is, well, our deployment pipeline is not catching and rolling back quickly enough when we've shipped buggy software. And this is why, you know, I forget who, which of us, we were talking about, you know, creativity in operations. And the thing I love about ops is it changes so much. You know, you solve one thing, you solve it well, and you get to put it down and go on to something else. And there's always something that is the biggest, like, pain point. And you're not doing your job well if it's the same thing constantly. So if, if you think about ops as, like, 
a thing that we all participate in, then it starts with valuing quality, however you've defined it for your organization. So for managers, how do you signal that you value something? Well, do you pay people? <laughs> so many people are like, well, I can hire software engineers. I can't hire good ops people. I'm like, how much do you pay them? And it's like, well, you know, 80% of what you pay a software engineer. I'm like, well, you're not going to get operations people that are on a caliber with the software people that that you're hiring. Like you're just not, uh, you're signaling that you don't value it as much. Google eight years ago or so figured this out. They were like, we can hire software engineers. No problem. We have this great brand. We can't hire SREs. And they adjusted it so the SREs made more than software engineers. And suddenly, guess what? They had all the SREs they could stand, you know, <laughs> because software engineers started converting to it. You had the infrastructure minded software engineers. They're like, oh, this is valued just as much, if not more. Cool. <laughs> when you say SRE, what is the R? Software or something engineer? Reliability engineer. Reliability. Which awesome. Is, which is Google's name for, for it. Um, I personally hate that, but I hate lots of things. <laughs> Well, that just says that reliability isn't anybody else's problem, right? Exactly. And it says that all you do is keep other people's shit up, which fuck you. No, I don't <laughs> like the implications, but what they've chosen to do, more power to them. Okay. So as an org, it, it seems almost like, like a truism or like tautological. Do you value the things that you value the most? Uh, but often those things are misaligned and the way that you're expressing what you value is not aligned with what you say that you value in, in terms of uh, what you're shipping to the world. Now, if you're an e-commerce site, um, maybe the things that you value most have nothing to do with ops, just bare minimum. Great. But like, then don't complain about why, you know, you're not getting world-class ops stuff. When you're promoting people, like how much do you factor in? The extent to which they factor in operational effects, you know, I personally believe that no one, even like mobile developers, no one should be promoted to have a title of senior engineer if they don't know how to give a shit about the quality of what they're putting out there in the world, like the life cycle of their code. Like that to me defines a senior engineer. And, and I know this sounds kind of abstract and I'm going to like work backwards in this in a minute, I promise. But I really do think it starts with just like thinking about what do we value? What defines quality to us? And you can't expect people to just independently go off and value ops if you're not signaling respect for it as an org. Some of the companies that are the most aggressive publicly about, you know, we don't do ops. We have transcended operations are the ones who I personally know have software engineers logging in, SSHing into hosts individually and like looking at log lines. I'm just like, well, okay. That seems like a very sad, sad life to me. Efficient allocation of resources. Now I have a follow-up question. So earlier you talked about like not worrying about certain decisions until you have like the really successful problems. So then how does that square with thinking about the reliability and the operations, you know, like from the beginning as the software developer? Yes. Everything that we're saying is contextual, right? When I say don't worry about those problems until you have the problems of success, I'm super specifically talking about in the early days of your startup, in the first six months, in the mm -hmm. first year, you know, when you don't even know if you're going to be around for a year, you know, this is your time horizon, right? When you start out and you're a baby startup, your time horizon is a week. <laughs> I guarantee you from week to week, what you're working on will shift or you're doing it wrong most likely. And, and we're like approaching the one year mark of our startup, right? And it's becoming a quarter. It's like a month to a quarter. Um, it's still going to change a lot, but our horizon is now a month to a quarter. And we're starting to think in terms of, okay, we're getting a little more confident. We're going to be around. Now, if you're lucky enough to work with senior engineers at the very beginning, they will automatically do this. This is what I'm talking about. It's like you have internalized so many of these lessons that you're not thinking about it, but you're doing it anyway, right? Because you've seen this pattern and these mistakes 
the amount of time I spent choosing our stack was not a lot, but I've done it a lot of times and I advise a lot of people so I could do it quickly and I could anticipate out a couple of years. And if I didn't have that, I would ask people because the biggest bang for your buck that you can get is just by sitting down and talking to someone senior. And if you don't have these relationships, you should always offer to pay. It's incredibly presumptuous to just be like, hi, will you advise me for free random person off the internet on how to like expertly do my thing? (sighs) This happens to me all (laughs) the time. And it's just like, you know, do you think that you're the first person this week to ask me that? Fuck you. Um, (laughs) but to get back to the time size, if you're a three-year-old company, like your horizon should be a solid half, you know, looking ahead, anticipating these problems because you will save yourself so much time and energy and pain down the line just by asking the questions up front. And if you're a company like Facebook or Google, you know, your time horizon is like five years or 10 years. So I can very casually be like, you know, don't worry about these problems if you have them. And that's me talking from where I am now in the like pre one year time frame. And the older and more mature you get and the less your appetite for risk, the more you want your time horizon to be longer and the more work you want to do up front to address that. So I want to, before we get to the next segment, super quickly, you said, what should software engineers be doing to educate themselves, to level up? And first of all, put yourselves in the on-call rotation, whether it's you owning your little microservice, whether it's you as a team, whether you're used to leaning on your ops team, don't (laughs) ask them to put you in the rotation to some extent like and we could have a whole fucking talk about we could do it we could fill hours with like the minutia of how to craft a non-call rotation but this is about tightening the feedback loops right is making sure that the people who break the things get that feedback not mediated through like three or four layers because then they're less sensitive they are not exposed to the consequences and you don't have to be exposed to it every time but occasionally like At Parse, we would have, you know, a rotation. And this is not just technical on-call, but also like on-call in terms of like support. I'm a big fan of software engineers spending time in the support rotation too. Every single time a developer would be doing their day of support or their week of support, they would come out of it and reprioritize everything on their plate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's super important. There's nothing like being directly exposed to it. Dog fooding. You know, Christine, my co-founder, is amazing about the the human and support side of this, you know, about crafting a, she has a talk that she did at Heavy Bit recently about creating a culture that optimizes for developer experience, where developers are your customers. She was always having us do hackathons, you know, create mobile apps using Parse. Oh, hey, suddenly our docs got a lot better. Oh, hey, suddenly <laughs> our like sample code was updated, you know, because we realized how frustrating it was to have to go through some of these early experiences. So yeah, expose yourself to the consequences, whether it's operational or people. I know so much of it will just flow from that and so much of it will be contextually appropriate to whatever you're doing. And then value it, expose yourself to the consequences and... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that's all that matters because you're smart and you'll figure so much out. You'll know what questions to ask after that, I think. Charity, you said something about problems that are just not a problem until they are. Was misogyny in tech one of those for you? Yeah, for sure. So I was raised very, very, very um, isolated, evangelical, Christian homeschooled, did not know people. And all I knew when I escaped, I ran away to college when I was 15 because it was the most rebellious thing I could think of to do. (laughs) And I was just like, fuck this. I had this visceral reaction to be treated like a woman because I grew up with this model of what being a woman was that was pumping out babies and you were doing dishes and your life is the small, small thing. And I just wanted to run as far away from it as I could. 
And when I saw the engineering labs that were empty of women, I was just like, yes, I have found my place where no one can ever treat me like that. And this was, as you can imagine, a years long ongoing process to rewind. And I didn't think of myself as a woman in tech. I completely identified with, you know, the dudes being one of the, the only woman on the team wherever I went. That's how I was happy. That's where I was comfortable. And I still, I don't recognize it usually. It's like you develop this incredibly thick callus, you know, and that callus was super helpful to me getting through the first, you know, 15 years of my career in tech. I've been on call since I was 17, <laughs> right? And when I started becoming aware of reality, it's like, you know, you're shaving down that callus and suddenly you're noticing things that you weren't noticing before and it's really uncomfortable. For me, I think that the inflection point came when I stopped going to other people for help all the time and I started being the one that people came to for help. That boosted my confidence. I didn't feel as defensive and I started to feel more established. I consider myself deeply fortunate that I grew up believing the lie of meritocracy. <laughs> I completely believed that everything was within my control. And of course, it's manifested as looking down on people who hadn't succeeded. Uh, I have so much empathy for people who are in that place because I, I was there. It's a lie. But paradoxically, it makes you more powerful when you believe it. And I would never have achieved escape velocity if I hadn't believed it. I think one of the ways that we can help each other is by being there for each other and finding our own communities. It shouldn't be you against the meritocracy. It shouldn't be you against these biased power structures. It should be us against those power structures. So, Charity, I think that what you're talking about is the struggle. And I feel like there's so many people who relate to that because on one hand, you don't want to always be the only one because that is very hard. And so you do want to go find somebody who can make you remember that, you know, you're not just like an anomaly, that there's other people who are like you. But then on the other hand, you don't want to be always off to the side in this little pocket of people, because that's also isolating. Even though you're trying to find your own power, you're still not a part of this like overall majority, which is also a problem. to change the world, right? Yeah, it's really. And I think that what happens is that that experience of feeling like you have to be two or three or four different types of people, depending upon the situation, is actually happening to a whole lot of people. And there's only a really, in reality, there's only a small group of people who get to be the same person everywhere. And everybody else is trying to be the same person everywhere. But then nobody talks about how hard that is. And how much it can kind of tear away at you because it makes you question who you are. It makes you question, like, am I being authentic if I only want to be around, like, a woman's group? Because that makes me feel like I have more power. Or am I being authentic if I avoid the woman's group because I don't want to be associated with, oh, you you're a woman engineer? Because I experience the same thing. Like, if I go to a meetup and I'm the only woman, then it's like you don't want to be talking to the only other woman because then it seems like you want to be in a corner with just women, or if I'm the only person of color, and then oh. you, there's maybe one or two others, then you kind of all stay at different points in the room because you don't want people to be like, oh, we don't want to talk to them because maybe they want to be alone. And I think it's really important for everybody who is not experiencing that to understand that we don't want, nobody wants to feel like that. Nobody wants to have to be two or three different kinds of people. They just want to be who they are. And that's yeah. good and accepted. And that's the struggle. 
because you're trying to like advance a cause that you didn't really start. Like you're not the reason why people treat you different, but you also don't want other people to go through that because you know how hard that is and how much it hurts people. But then you don't want to spend all your time feeling like you're an advocate and you just can't be who you are. Sometimes you just want to be an engineer. You don't want to have to be like hyphen engineer. So I feel like there's a whole lot of people who relate to that. I think it's really important to talk about how hard it is because it's not like, here's the answer. Yeah, that's really, really well put. Thank you. As I become more a senior in my career, I feel a responsibility to like pay for my sins. You know, that's like flippantly put. I I make a lot of flippant like statements, but like I do want to give back. I want to help the people who are coming, you know, the next generation. I want to help them survive. This is why, like, I created a local group a couple years ago. It's like an underground meetup. And I love having this group because when I find people, I have a place that I can vouch for. It's safe. I have control over it. I can feel comfortable wrapping people into the embrace of we'll be your tribe. It's a mixed group. And I love it because it gives everyone more power because they're participating in a meetup that has some of the best engineers in the the world, men and women, but who are all like we all share a philosophy of equality, but we're all super excited about tech. Yes, it is. about. That's what Astrid was saying about like being your whole self. Yes. Yes. But not every place is safe to be your whole self. Not Mm -hmm. every place is safe. And there's nothing wrong with banding together no. with other people who are either like you or different in ways that are different from you and being intersectional about it and finding your community and drawing strength and resolve from knowing that someone has your back. We all have to do whatever we have to do to make it through, for sure. At the end of our episodes, we like to take a little bit of time to reflect on the conversations that we've had, the things that made us think or the things that we're planning on taking away from it. So who would like to talk about what they are taking away from the conversation we had today with Charity? Um, My takeaway is that it is really important to understand operations. It's not a side interest, like it should be part of the main interest of building really good software. Yeah, I I got something similar from earlier on in the call, and it was reminding me that like every so often uh, somebody in the Ruby world will write an excellent rant about the importance of like actually understanding and evaluating the gems that you would choose to include in your project. Today was like uh, also a good reminder to me that that rule of actually understanding your dependencies uh, still applies in a quote serverless architecture too, and in fact to everything we do. Um, and it was a good reminder for me personally to maybe push back a little bit against my tendency to go, oh, that's ops, it's hard, I don't know what to do. I am reminded of something that came up very early on when we were talking about early career developers and creating spaces that are safe for failure and realizing that we are all working to try and make tech better in our own ways. And that we all have very unique ways of going about doing that that are informed by our life experiences. And um, I really think that's something for us to celebrate. And I'm really glad that we had the discussion we had today that touched on tech and touched on a lot of different things and ended on a very personal and human note. Um, I'm very thankful that Greater Than Code creates an environment where we can have conversations like that. So thank you all. I'm in kind of a, a similar space. I'm, I'm really happy with how we got to a very human, very vulnerable point near the end. I love and hate at the same time, and it's a dichotomy. So I think loving and hating is exactly the right way to approach it, that if you want to change the system, you have to have power in the system or the ability to attack it from outside. Most of us take the inside power route. But then if you want to 
have power within the system, you often have to work within the system. And that means being complicit with its behaviors. And, and I love that dichotomy. I mean, I hate it, but I also love it that once you do find one route through, that doesn't prevent other people from finding their way through. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of hubris that we have to have to get up and move every day. And there's a certain amount of hubris that we have to be very careful about not clobbering other people with. And I love that dichotomy. I love the fact that the system is the source of the power that we have to use to break the system because the system is broken. And I, I'm absolutely 100% ambivalent about it. I love it and hate it at the same time. Charity, is there anything about this show that you'd like to reflect on? I really appreciate that you folks have um, created a space to talk about like the intersection of tech and human issues. Oh, I'm so bummed that. I like didn't get a chance to talk about all of the things that we're doing in the space of like making observability more human centered. Like this is this is what Honeycomb is all about. You know, it's taking complex systems and centering the human and remembering that as engineers, we're actually people too and subject to the same biases, the same shortcuts, the same heuristics and tendency to overlook things. The old way of doing things is you put all this separate into creating dashboards and you scroll through them and this falls apart when you can no longer predict all of the failure modes. And you kind of have to give up control and be like, no, I accept that I can't predict all the failure modes. And instead, let's design a system that is resilient and that empowers us as humans to like quickly diagnose things. On a meta level, that totally ties in. I appreciate the things that came up today around, you know, being mindful of how, you know, we start with Conway's law, the human systems uh, manifest themselves in the software systems that we create and how the feedback loop goes both ways. So this is an awesome podcast. I'm really honored to have been part of it. I really enjoyed talking to you all. And thanks for having me. Sam said a few episodes that greater than code is also cheaper than therapy. And I think um, we've seen that that idea realized here today. Charity, thank you so much for being our guest on the show. It was really fascinating talking to you and getting your perspective. Thanks so much. 